time for the Ron and Brian podcast. Get ready to fill your ears with the latest news, politics, current events, and whatever else we feel like talking about this week. And now, your hosts, Ron and Brian. All right, good evening, everybody. It is Sunday night. It is 8 o'clock. It is time for episode 215 of the Ron and Brian podcast. Uh, I'm Ron, as always, joined by my friend, Brian. Brian, how the hell are you this evening, my sir? Um, I'm embarrassed, to be brutally honest with you, because I just realized that I'm wearing the exact same T-shirt I wore last week. And I I think I'm as well. That is like that is a that is a fashion faux pas to say. Yeah, that's that. That's, you know, sometimes, you know, it's one of the things that I love about doing this show with you is that each and every week we are bringing something that has never been done before, never been discussed before. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I realize, you know, look, look, this is the same yeah. shirt I wore last week. It's just embarrassing. It's, you know, it's Bush league. It's Bush league, <laughs> but it is also, it's a very special day in Ron and Brian land. It is no, Brian's, no, no. 50th birthday today. Um, happy birthday yeah. to you, sir. How does it Thanks. feel uh, turning 50? You know, uh, I thought it was going to feel exactly the same. I thought that I was going to uh, wake up and just uh, feel like I was 49, but uh, that's not the case. I mean, 50 is a, it's an important number. It is, uh, it is half a century. Um, I am, uh, you know, my prime uh, uh, years are behind me. I am now looking at the downward slope of life. Um, you know, I, 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 I see that society is, is no longer geared towards, towards my generation. Um, you know, it starts to hurt um, when I lean down to pick things up. I say, as I'm, you know, uh, as my, my joints start folding. Um, it's actually, uh, it, it's, this may be the best day of my life. All right. Well, I hope so. I hope it's the best day of the first day of the rest of your life. Not only is it your 50th birthday, Brian, but 2022 marks 30 years since the beginning of the Ron and Brian show. As uh, many of you out there know, uh, this show originated back in our college radio days on WCB 90.9 FM, Albany, New York. Uh, We started the show. So now we're technically, as a team, 30 years old, which I think is also uh, something to celebrate as well. Yes, and I still, you know, it's funny how people say, but I still have underwear older than our friendship. I hope you hold on to that as long as we hold on to our friendship. Uh, So we're going to do kind of a special show tonight in honor of Brian's 50th and in honor of 30 years of the Ron and Brian show. Uh, We are going to do a uh, a retrospective, if you will, of uh, some of our... uh, of our material from uh, from 30 years ago. I think uh, maybe we'll call it a cringe retrospective uh, because it is kind of cringeworthy to listen to us from 30 years ago. Yeah. Not sure what happened to our voices uh, since then. Not sure why we felt we were funny back then. Uh, but you know, we we've picked uh, we've picked three clips, uh, extended clips, a couple of interviews, and then uh, a longer uh, section at the end. Uh, so one of the great things when we started doing the Ron and Brian show initially is we got this catalog of people who had written books who were willing to be interviewed literally anywhere. 
Like anyway. we were this little, what was it, 50 watt station? I in, thought we were 100 watts. 100 watts could be. But yeah. again, we really didn't broadcast that far outside of the realm of the campus. If you were not on campus, the the odds of you being able to put the AM the FM dial onto ninety point nine and hear any broadcast from that radio station minuscule. Um, you know, every now and then you'd get somebody, you know, f- uh, from downtown Albany. Um, it was really embarrassing. I remember my freshman year when I joined the radio station. Um, I, 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 it was one of the few things that I really felt proud of. Uh, you know, scholastically, my first year at Albany was a little disappointing, I guess you could say. Um, you know, but I, w- I remember telling friends, hey, listen, you know, uh, I'd love to stick around and study with you uh, after dinner. But I've got to go up to campus because I'm going to be on the radio. And everybody was like, what? I was like, yeah, that's right. I am a disc jockey at the school radio station. And uh, they would sit there and be like, what time are you on? And I would say, oh, 1 (laughs) a.m. And they'd be like, what, you know, how do I, where do I? I'm like, 90.9 FM, turn your dial. And this was, I mean, like, obviously we're, we're dating ourselves a little bit, but if, you know, this was, there really weren't many, um, uh, um, uh, digital, uh, digital tuners. tuners at that point. No, so you had to manually just you know slide somewhere between ninety one point one and eighty nine, and just hopefully. And I had friends that were like, "Yeah, I, we 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 sat there at one a.m. in the morning, and, and we just heard nothing. It was just static." And it was it was the early days of the internet too. Like you did sure. not stream. Uh, you know, LimeWire and Napster were still big. You weren't streaming radio stations no. to your home or your phone or your car at that point. So Mm-mm. it was a matter of you listen to us when we were on, which was 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. on Wednesday mornings, uh, yep. or you you missed out completely. So yeah. if it weren't for the uh, the collection of cassette tapes we have that we recorded on back then, we wouldn't yeah. be able to bring you these jewels. And our very first jewel, it was our uh, Valentine's Day spectacular uh, interview uh, with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Bob Schwartz, who had written a book called The One Hour Orgasm, uh, which apparently was a class that he taught uh, somewhere out there. And we're only going to play about, I think we play about 20 minutes of the interview. Like this guy talked for over an hour. And the one thing I always remember is he 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 wanted to take questions, so we made up questions and assigned them to names of people that worked at the radio station with us. Just about yes. well, what I liked so much about it was, I mean, this was our first foray into interviewing, um, and uh, you know, uh, they they what I, what I remember was they sent a copy of the book. Mm-hmm. Which, if I remember correctly, you actually read. I did, yes. And then you gave me the Cliff Notes version of the book, which was basically, you're not actually orgasming for for one hour. The idea is that you have sex for an hour. And, you know, it was basically my introduction to, you know, what is my current sex life, which I believe Sting refers to it as tantric um, sexual intercourse, which was... Um, and I also believe that in the uh, BDSM world, they refer to it as edging. I believe so as well. But the idea was to get yourself up to the point of orgasm, but hold back and then slow down. And um, and uh, I, I, I remember thinking to myself, that doesn't sound like fun whatsoever. <laughs> like that sounds like it would be frustrating. Little did I know. 
that years later there would be men on the internet that are paying women um, on a video conference per minute so that they could do that for an hour. Well, Dr. Bob Schwartz, sadly, no longer with us anymore, passed away a few years back. Uh, no. Now you get to go back in time. You get to relive with Ron and Brian, One Hour Orgasm with Dr. Bob Schwartz. Enjoy. We would like to introduce now, live on the radio, right here, WCDB Albany, Dr. Bob Schwartz. Hello? Good morning. Good morning. How are we doing today? I'm fine. Thank you. Wow. We have to thank you uh, for getting up so early. Do you um, normally wake up at this time? Uh, I'm still on Texas time, so it's not so bad. Yeah, All right. So you're suffering from a little jet lag, but nothing too serious. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into it. This is uh, the Ron and Brian Show. Our guest today, uh, the author of The One Hour Orgasm, Dr. Bob Schwartz, Ph.D., we were wondering, uh, what is the what do you have your PhD in, actually? It's in philosophy. It's a category called lifestyles, which is about models of behavior. And this particular model is about relationships, uh, a whole new kind of philosophy, and uh, one that we weren't taught by our parents, definitely. Yeah, I really, uh, you know, sitting, I, I look back at my youth and sitting around the dinner table, we never really got into the one-hour orgasm that much. Yeah. I don't think I, I had think these conversations. Yeah, I never, you know, it just never seemed to come up between, like, you know, passing the potatoes and dessert. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, as I understand, this is an actual class taught at Moore University? Yes, and and it's um, it, it's it's about um, this date. Actually, the homework is this one date that they send you on, and this it's a it's a lesson that you practice or you're encouraged to practice over and over and over. <laughs> and there are four kinds of people that take the course. Some of them um, they're married and they have a great sex life and a great relationship. And then there are the couples that it used to be good, but it's gone downhill. It's not so good anymore. And then. You've got the ones that it was never any good, and it still isn't. And then you have a lot of single people taking the course, which I thought was sort of unusual, but when I followed up on them, I found out that they uh, they fell into these great relationships right after they took the course, and it happened too often to just be coincidental. There was something going on that made them uh, find that perfect, in their life, and uh, and I guess it was like you know if you practice tennis enough and you get ready enough, pretty soon You'll you're on the court. Enough. Yeah, you made the uh, metaphor about the uh, Wimbledon in your book while we were reading it. Yes, uh, and 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 that's the expectation that uh, that happens in our society. We're expected really not to practice sex or talk about it or take lessons in it. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems a little strange for most people to uh, take lessons and become sexually trained. But our wedding nights, we're supposed to, we're to jump into bed and be experts about it. And right. it would be like getting married and then flying over to Wimbledon and be expected to play championship tennis right off the bat. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit unrealistic. Right. So you're saying, like, if we read the book, we'll become like the, the John McEnroe of orgasm. Well, you can't just read it. It'd be like reading about going to the gym and working out. I don't think that's the same thing as doing it. 
to yeah, actually sure. have to apply these principles yeah, to actual life. I know if you have the book set up in kind of a, a workbook manner almost, if you could explain how that works. Yeah, I wanted to give people the same experience of uh, being in the course and going through it and what it was like. And I, I laid it out exactly the way it is in the course so that you're... The same things happen, I think, when people read the book. First, there's this total disbelief. No one believes it's possible until they try it. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing anybody can say that will will prepare you for what's coming. Because, you see, especially men, because one of the things that we have is this sort of warped definition of what an orgasm is. Uh, we think that the orgasm is the ejaculation. And that's fine, except women have orgasms and they don't have the ejaculation. So uh, it took me a while. I had to read up on a lot of studies, uh, being a man, to right. find out exactly what these people were talking about and how to even ask them the question if they were having one or not. Mm -hmm. And um, I found out that in one study that they'd actually tested average men and average women. And the average man had six to nine contractions during an orgasm, and the average woman had 9 to 12. One wow. woman in the study had 33 contractions, but oh, they wrote her off because Can I get they thought the women malfunction. Yeah. So we're talking about having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those same kinds of contractions. Within within a one-hour period. Yeah, well, as long as you want, as the longest long. they ever kept it going. As long as it's pleasant. was 11 hours at the university. Excuse me, could you repeat that? <laughs> I think they stopped for lunch. Oh, uh, okay. So you're saying the long... Wait, now you're like a, uh, like a bell goes off. Lunch break. Now you're saying they actually have people have, have sex to study this? They brought couples in? Yeah, uh, well, at the university, they... they, they they actually train people as sex therapists and relationship counselors. So uh -huh. this is just part of their training and their certification. They have to learn how to do this in, in order to become certified. Mm -hmm. And so some of the testing that they do was to actually see how long they could keep this going for if they put their minds to it. And um, I, I guess it was sort of a contest, but... Uh, <laughs> And I don't know why they stopped, except I guess it stopped being fun. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, once you get to like around 11, 12 hours, you know, you're just like, you got to take a break. You know, there's just, <laughs> there's just so much you can do in one day. The, the question is, I guess for a lot of people, is why would you stop at all? I mean, most people would think you would sort of just lock the doors and hibernate and become a bum and never, never go to work. But it's it's like eating food. You know, you do get full at some point. And with this particular uh, technique, your nervous system has a lot to do with it. And the training of your nervous system to accept this much pleasure, uh, the longest, it took my wife and I six months to work up to the full hour. Wow. But it was so much fun practicing. <laughs> Now going back to uh, where your system gets full, that that uh, that relates to uh, the topic of tumescence that uh, you talk about in your book. Uh, could you explain to our listeners what tumescence is and the five levels that you have uh, uh, sectioned it into? Yes, uh, this was really uh, turned on the lights for me in a lot of areas because um, tumescence is is described as sexual energy that's created by a woman's hormones. Now, men don't have 
those kind of hormones that create that sexual energy. Right. Uh, it, we may have them. I, I think the, the truth is we do have them, but they're just the the cycle is so negligible they can't almost chart it. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost a flat line. Right. Uh, women, however, have this huge cycles. Uh, they have one cycle a month with two peaks. Now, the one peak that most people are familiar with is the one that male doctors call PMS. It's the one around the time of their period. And all that is is sexual energy that's built up so high that it usually causes an excessive amount of pressure and tension and sometimes even physical discomfort. Mm -hmm. The other one, however, which is almost as high, is around the time of a woman's ovulation cycle. Now, this is interesting to, to look at like this because if it's just energy, then it's not good or bad. Um, and it's like as a man, we're walking down the beach of life every day of our life. But we should know this, that twice a month, these two tidal waves are going to come in. Right. You can either ignore them like most men do, mm-hmm. and they're going to cause you a lot of mischief. Or you can get a surfboard and take a few lessons and have some great rides. Okay. And that's what the one-hour orgasm is about. It's actually about using those waves of energy for pleasure rather than for mischief. Now, how do, how do the five levels break down? So that people uh, can... Well, the level one is called flat. Uh, we're able to sort of distinguish five levels. Right. And the the, the flat level means there's no sexual energy there at all. It's just okay. it's like a flat tire. And it needs to be raised up. Uh, level five in, is the one where dishes usually get thrown against the wall. It it's, <laughs> means the sexual energy has gotten way too high, and it's pretty much out of control. And level three uh, is the one that we're shooting for. We, we've recently started to call this the love frequency. Right. Because this is the frequency that you want your partner vibrating at. Okay. All right. Makes sense. Now, um what is now when you get now what is level four is that i know it's i know it like five is just maximum now five is not a good level to be having sex at is it well it's not like there's any good or bad level to have sex at you really don't want to say no yeah but for your maximum sexual pleasure to truly be able to have a one-hour orgasm you want to be at level three well you could actually channel level five it just takes a lot of skill and uh, most people uh you have to be very advanced in order to take it at that point because it's usually so much out of control. However, people find that their great fi- their greatest fights sometimes turn into their greatest lovemaking, and wow. that's what's happened. I've noticed you've, that too, yeah. You've taken yeah. that energy at that point and some way miraculously been able to turn it around, but it's usually accidental. Level four is... Um, it, 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 it's it's not that high yet, but the person's starting to get very anxious. Uh, so the the energy level is pretty much kind of gone away. It's like waiting till you're too hungry to eat. Uh, you're just sort of desperate at this point, which isn't a very pretty place to be at. It's not attractive. Yeah. Well, I noticed you said in your book that level four is uh, that the hottest sex is available at this level, but most of your biggest fights happen. Yeah, it's very dangerous. It's sort of uh, sort of like nitroglycerin. You have to be very careful with it at this point. And level two is the, the, the sexual energy isn't flat. It's it's starting to kind of get interested. 
just sort of uh, perking a little bit. Right. Anticipation going on. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, when I was in college, I went. I was at a fraternity, and one of my fraternity brothers was one of these guys who could. To to me, he could walk into any room, right? And the next five minutes later, he's walking out with the most beautiful woman in the room. And I'd ask him, since he was a fraternity brother, you know, what did he say? How did he do that? And he would tell me the words he used, and then I would go use them, and they never worked. Right. And right. I only found out four years ago what he did. Um, he'd actually walk into a room, and he was. Uh, aware enough and awake enough to notice this tumescence and he would look at one woman and she'd look back at him and sort of in this nondescript way she'd shake her head that she wasn't interested and he'd look at another one and, and then she'd look back and she wasn't interested and then he'd look at the third one and she'd look back and there was this interest there mm-hmm. and he'd walk over to her and then he'd be walking out the door well in truth he hadn't chosen her she had chosen him but he was awake enough to, to actually be able to spot that energy. And that's that's something that men now will have the tools to do if they begin to practice this. All right. Now, how, how, um, um, I, I just lost my train of thought. How, how did he notice this? What, I mean, did you, in your studies, did you, had he any, taken any course on this or was it just through his like own experiences? Uh, no, no, let me, let me explain something to you. See, in the, in the mammal kingdom, this, this is, the way it's done, um, and I, I especially like the story about the panda bear. Yes, yeah, uh, that is a good. Yeah, story. That's pretty interesting. You see, the the male panda is up in his tree eating bamboo leaves, and um, the female can be as far as three to seven miles away, way beyond sight or sound, and she only goes into heat about once every one to seven years. Yeah. So he has to be very patient. Uh, but when she does, when when her tumescence goes yeah, up yeah. and she's ready to mate, he picks it up. Now, it's way beyond sight and sound and smell, but he somehow knows. So we may have lost or uh, become unaware of some abilities that we have as men. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. No, no one's able to actually say. But there's a certain look, and there's a certain movements or something that if you become, if you actually become aware of the distinction, you can start picking them up long before you know actually what they are. But you feel the feeling is you're feeling like you're zapped, like someone's lasered you. And and you don't know where it's coming from exactly until you kind of look around. Right. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think we've all had an experience yes. like that where I think it's some just, point. you know we've been with someone, um, and just for some reason, and Cupid can, gets you. Yeah, you can just feel the the sexual energy, um, and sometimes the sexual tension. Yeah, and and it's uh, if a woman actually begins to develop her ability to control it, she can turn it down or off. She can turn it up, and she can learn to focus it. And and it's your Star Wars themes that you started off with. It looks like that. I've seen it done. Right. It looks like the, one of those beams come up and, and hit <laughs> you, and they can do it from across the room. It's very it's very dangerous. Now, do you think the the reason part of the reason that um, we've lost the ability to pick up um, the sexual signals is just the proliferation of just free sex in America today, where you can just get it on, you know, on TV, on movies, over the phone lines. Do you think that has an effect on sexuality in America as a whole? Well, maybe, but I think it's more of the 
Puritan ethic that it at some point in our culture became not okay mm-hmm. and uh, became repressed. So that uh, people's ability to do this were uh, were were lessened a lot because we weren't able to actually acknowledge it or own it. Um, and and what it is is when you have this distinction and you can begin to develop it, then you can become responsible for the consequences of it also. Because mm-hmm. these days, it's actually very, very dangerous to be promiscuous. I mean, it can kill you. And it's it's happening more and more. And I don't think people are actually grasping the consequences of their behavior at this point. I noticed that you put in your book a section for safe sex. Yeah, it's is not it still even possible? Sex. It's actually survival. Survival sex. sex. It goes right, one yeah. step beyond what you're told is safe today. Because what people are told is safe today is like Russian roulette. Right. Uh, the condoms that they're told that will protect them actually fail about 22% of the time. That, oh. That's like oh. uh, one out of six. So that's like putting only one bullet in a six shooter and spinning the chamber and putting it to your head and pulling the trigger. Oh. That's about how safe it is, but, but you can you can back that up with with other things that make it much more safer, and and this makes a committed monogamous relationship really much more practical uh, than most people probably see it to be. Mm-hmm. And if you can have all the fun and all the pleasure and excitement out of a committed monogamous relationship, then why would you want to wander around and take a chance of Catching something that could kill you. Good point. So, so you're saying this could, this could, uh, one hour orgasm could end the AIDS epidemic. Yes, it could. I mean, it would make it would make everybody just just stick together and maybe even cause world peace. I, I love that. That was that was probably like my favorite part of the book, where <laughs> you came up with the idea that one hour orgasms could, you know, give the whole world like the ends of wars and just world lasting peace. And also, I also enjoyed the part. Where you just said the national deficit would be eliminated because of one-hour <laughs> orgasms. Uh, well, maybe I took it a little bit I to the extreme, but it would be nice if it worked. I'm not, I'm not saying it would, but it's certainly worth a try. Now, you one, never one, know. You one, never one, know. One question about balancing the national deficit: If everyone's inside having these, you know, one to eleven-hour sex sessions, they're not going out and purchasing. They just, you know, the economy <laughs> would just slow down to a halt. No one would go to work. It nothing. would seem that way, but. Actually, you become more productive. Um, you're able to do more in less time, and your life becomes about something that's very interesting. When when I sit down with with couples and I have them write down their goals separately, mm-hmm. and I look at them, very seldom does a couple write down a goal called "have more fun." And it's interesting because after you're together for a few years, you lose that. Um, I don't know where you lose it. Maybe you lose it in college or when you first get a job. But at some point, just having more fun as one of the goals in your life disappears and it becomes about survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes about paying the bills or raising the children or, you know, in this economy, it's pretty hard. The, the 90s weren't supposed to look like this. Right. They were supposed to be a lot easier than this, but they are really, really hard for most people. And I, it, it's easy to drop out pleasure in your life. But to have it as one of your goals, not just the goal, but one of your goals, just to have more fun, 
it makes really you happier. begins to take it in a direction that I think is very productive. And right. something I think our society really has to think about. Yes, so you're saying that the 90s should be the decade of the one-hour orgasm? <laughs> Dr. Dr. Bob Schwartz, away. For one thing, um, one of the things that I see in the future is this distinction that I call a sexually trained person. Okay. Uh, there are very few of them walking around, and the ones that are trained or taken, you know that, that thing they tell women, all the good ones are taken? Yeah, right. Well, it's true <laughs> that once you're sexually trained then and you're able to get all the pleasure and, and excitement out of a committed monogamous relationship, then you're pretty much off the market, and no one can steal you away because you're, you're really full. Um, it, it's just when you're not, and you're not getting what you want, that you become vulnerable. Well, there it is, Brian. Uh, quite an interview. Uh, shocking, scandalous. Uh, put us on the map, uh, as as we like to say. Uh, but uh, again, if you're interested in hearing uh, the uh, the full show, uh, please reach out to us. Maybe we'll make this content available to our Patreon subscribers. It's uh, a great the- idea. So we'll work on that. Um, What I found so fascinating about that interview was um, how your questions to him were actually poignant and referred to the book. And as the conversation drew longer and longer, um, my contribution to it grew less and less as I became thoroughly embarrassed that I really had no um, way to tie his book into uh, any of the thoughts that I had. Um, now, this theme may carry itself into uh, this next bit here. Although, actually, I do believe you read this book. So uh, this next interview was by a gentleman by the name of Charles Adams. He was a tax historian, and he had written a book called For Good and Evil, The Impact of Taxes on the Course of Civilization. And this is actually one of the books I remember you reading because you were a poli-sci major, correct? Minor, minor. No, minor, excuse me. So you, And you actually uh, you read this book because it interested you because it tied in politics and civilization. Sure. This is not to say that you retained enough of it to... Uh, add a lot of questions, but you were, if I remember in listening, because we played the whole interview, uh, you were there. You, uh, you, oh, yeah. you, you, you threw your hat into the ring a few times. This is the part that I find most embarrassing is that, you know, it, it was a subject matter that I was very aware of. Um, I, w- I, I could speak intelligently about it. Um, it was interesting to me. It was, you know, I felt like I was speaking to somebody um, you know, not necessarily at a peer level, you know, he was more, he was knowledge, more knowledgeable than me, but when you listen to, uh, my, you know, my, or the audio portion that I'm bringing to the table, I sound like such a stoner <laughs> that it is looking back on it. Like my brain, like my voice sounds like I have just fried my brain so that as I'm making these points, they're coming out so slow and I'm, uh, uh, it's just, it is like, it is so, um, uh, embarrassing to me that, uh, that that is what I was willing to put out into the world. I mean, now you look at what I'm doing far more intelligent. I speak so eloquently, yes. um, but my points are concise. You know, I don't ramble, you know, the words just, you know, it's, it's such a, a, a radical change, um, 
and I feel like you know you you kind of get an idea of who I was um, back in college, you know, in the in this clip. Well, that's why we call this the cringe retrospective because it is a little oh. cringeworthy. Uh, Charles Adams again, sadly, also not with us anymore, passing away in 2013. Is there a Ron and Brian curse? I don't know. We'll we'll find out maybe in future episodes when we uh, go back in the time machine. Uh, but this one again, if you're if I think the points in this from from a taxation without representation edge is where he kind of comes from. Uh, yeah. As as relevant today as they were 30 years ago. So we are proud to bring you our Ron and Brian interview with Charles Adams. Here we go. And we have Charles Adams, author of the book for good and evil. The impact of taxes on the course of civilization. How are you doing today, Mr. Adams? I'm doing very well. Okay. Um, basically, we're going to talk about the book today. We're going to talk about taxes. So a little bit about the IRS. Perhaps the good and bad, the evils and the goods, I guess you could say. A now, lot of people just assume that, you know, paying taxes and that's like they really don't have they don't really wonder what the irs does they they blindly fill out their forms exactly they either get their refunds or they pay their taxes and in the next half hour you're going to learn a gonna lot learn of stuff a lot now we understand you're coming off uh, you were on c-span last night that's right so basically this uh and we also understand that pbs is considering picking this book up uh for uh, a possible series of shows that's right yeah very interesting. Now, can you tell them, uh, tell the people how your book is basically set up and what you uh, what you talk about? Well, the book is is a, an attempt to uh, make people have an appreciation for the power and the force that taxes have been in the course of history. Uh, we we start off with ancient Babylon, and 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 that you know seems like a long time ago, but there was a proverb in ancient Babylon that said that you can have a king and you can have a lord. But the man to fear is the tax collector. Right. Now, now yeah. if you took that proverb and substituted the president for the king mm -hmm. and the governor for the lord and the IRS for tax tax collector, it would be just as applicable today as it was uh, 5,000 years ago. Correct. And so when we take the, the reader on a journey through history, we're not teaching uh, and trying to, to, to explain the way the taxes were in, in the sense of what the rates were and who they taxed. We're trying to show the, the force of taxes as a, as a powerful force directing civilization. And so we go to the major events of history, and we almost work with a kind of a theorem that behind every major event there's a tax story. Okay. And, and using that as kind of a, a basis for research, uh, we've gone into the ancient civilizations, and, and we've discovered a lot of amazing things that, to, to give you some ideas of how powerful taxes were. If you bring up the you know, American Revolution, you know, men died there, but right. the French Revolution, which was, you know, essentially a tax revolt, most people don't realize that when they set up the guillotine and they were cutting off heads, we, we know they cut off the head of Louis XVI and his wife. Of course. What most people don't know is they took the entire tax bureau down and they cut off all those heads. Wow. And one of the problems Napoleon had and his successors is they didn't have a tax bureau. Everybody had their head cut off. And, and, and that shows you how mad they were. That shows you how angry they were. That that surely took their anger out on the king because he was the head of the state, which they didn't like. But the real anger was directed at the tax bureau. And so as we probed in the history and we began to dig up, you know, events like that, uh, it became a remarkable tax document. Uh, uh, it it uh, you could call it a tax shelter, but it was more than that. And it, what happened that it 
it told about Egypt at the time that it was it was written, which was about two or three hundred BC. Mm-hmm. And at that particular time, there was a major tax revolt that had erupted. Uh, the jails were full. Uh, the, the peasants had fled from their farmlands, uh, and, and there was a total chaos in society. So to try and restore order, Ptolemy, who was uh, you know the king of England during that during the, I mean the king of Egypt during that time, in order to restore peace. He made a proclamation of, of peace, as he called it, to try and restore order. And what he did is he freed all the people from prison so they could go back to work. He invited all the fugitives that had fled from their lands to come back to work. He canceled all the tax debts, no matter how old, how old they were, and he granted tax immunity to all the temples. Now, the temples in Egypt at that time ruled over one-third of all the lands of Egypt, so that gives you some you know, perspective of how powerful the temples were. Right. And since they were granted tax immunity, they wanted to make sure that this particular decree of the king lived on permanently. So mm. they did say, said, look, let's, let's chisel this thing in, in a piece of black basalt, which is one of the hardest rocks you can find, and okay. we'll put it in three different languages so there's no question mm-hmm. if somebody shows up that they won't know what it means. Right. So, so they, so that's why they chiseled it in Greek and in the other two languages. But it was a very exciting document to read because here was a remarkable tax story. Yeah, it's kind of weird because like you hear a lot about the Rosetta Stone in like all your history classes, and they say, oh, you know, like once they found this, they learned a lot about the Egyptians, but you never really found out about like what was actually in it and what it was written about. Well, the fact that it was written in stone should tell you how important it was. Right, yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, they've been writing on papyrus for 2,000 years, but, boy, they wanted this one in stone. They didn't want anybody able to burn it up. Right, right. And uh, it was it was remarkable, not only because it was a tax document, because it really revealed what was going on in Egypt. And, and I think that's another rule of thumb that you can learn from the Rosetta Stone, is that how a nation taxes and who is taxed and how it spends money, it'll tell you more about a nation, I think, than anything else. If you want a kind of a rule of thumb about a society, take a look at the tax system. It'll tell you a lot. Yeah, what, what, what do you think our tax system says about modern America? Well, I, I think one of the problems with our tax system is that it says we're, we're pretty ignorant of history. And, and you know, the, the, the ancient Greek writers, uh, and the particularly Greek historians, they said that history ought to teach, and that, and that the reason you should study history is because it'll help you to you know, make mistakes. And we seem to, when it comes to, to taxes, to be oblivious to history. And it's almost amazing that we have so much knowledge at our fingertips as a society, and we're so ignorant of the force of taxes in, in life. And we we can look at, you know, so many of the great empires that tax themselves in to death and that tax themselves in slavery, uh, and yet you don't find one ounce of history in, in all the tax makers and all the tax literature you read today. I, I think that... Uh, you know, the saying that if you don't learn from history, you're condemned to relive it right. certainly has a lot of application here because uh, one of the one of our chapters talks about the fall of Rome and how yeah. taxation yeah. the collapse of Rome. One of the I think one of the great tragedies of our system is that in order to make it work, because we're trying to sort of legislate against human nature, we, we're very taxing too heavily. We've had to resort to um, uh, turning our system into essentially a spy system from an honor system. You guys may not realize it, but 40 years ago, the income tax system, there were no information returns at all filed. I mean, now, every time you turn around, some report goes to the IRS so that they really really have a handle on you. And and so from an honor system, we've moved into a spy system. Mm -hmm, And we've done that because our system is bad. And and, uh, we've uh, we've 
the ignorance that you speak of, do you blame that on a lack of education in the school system about tax history? I think so. Let's take my book, for example. Uh, this is my second book. The, the first book that came out was really the first book on the history of taxation that, that gave you a, a perspective going back through time and coming up to the modern day. And if you go to Europe, you, you'll find that there are endowed chairs in the universities on the history of taxation uh, with uh, very leading professors on it. And then I don't know of any, any any college or university in America that teaches a course on the history of taxation. They certainly don't offer one at this school. No. And, and uh, one of the reasons you know is one, one of the reasons I got interested in the book is, is because I was I was teaching in college history and, and I began to notice the role of taxes. And so I, I was at UCLA at the time and I went out to the library there, which is you know, one of the great libraries in the world. And, uh, you know, they had card catalogs in those days, and I found through the card catalog on taxes and history, and I couldn't find anything other than little bits and pieces. And I said, well, I said, nobody's ever written on the subject. I can't believe this. And so I think that uh, the ignorance is that we're paying for it. Now, do you think it's possible the ignorance also might be something that is controlled by the government, that they don't want the, the, the mass public to know the history of taxes, is that they think that since knowledge is power, that if people learn too well, much, mm -hmm. that... Yeah, that would assume that they know the history. I don't think they know the history. I, I, I think that um, it doesn't mean that they're completely ignorant. Uh, certainly the the history of Western civilization, you know, last uh, three or four hundred years has been the history of lower taxation. I kind of like to think of them like a heavy smoker who doesn't want to hear about uh, the dangers of, of cancer and, and heart disease and emphysema that smokes three or four packs a day. Right. Um, and, and he thinks he can beat the odds. And the same thing is true with people that take drugs. They think they can beat the odds. And I think we as a as a country think we can beat the odds. That Sure, taxation might have wrecked Rome and it might have destroyed the, the great Spanish Empire. It might have brought the end to the spread of Islam uh, and, and other nations that suffered. But uh, we don't think it's going to happen here. And, and I think that's a terrible mistake. Yeah, that's one thing that uh, one misguided notion I think America has is that we're this great empire, but we're only two, about, you know, a little over 200, 200 years, years old, old right. um, which uh, is about the time that other empires started to crumble under their under their taxation. Now, going, uh, I'm a little interested to find out about how you feel taxes affected, how fa taxes ended the uh, the Islam, ended the nation of Islam. Yeah, that's, that was another marvelous find. Uh, one of the things that, you know, most of us learned is that, is that the armies of Islam, you know, spread out through the Middle East and through North Africa, and it was, it was, you know, it was death to the infidel. And, uh, and of course, given the, you know, that was, that was the way they spread, but they really didn't spread with just that. What they said as they moved into what were Christian territories under the old Roman Empire, they said, if you join the faith, and if you become a Muslim, you will be free from tax. If you don't want to become a Muslim, then you will pay a tax. And if you don't want to pay the tax, then we'll kill you. So they had three choices. Rather severe. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the first choice was very attractive. I mean, wow, you know, if you were just a young uh, or, or even an illiterate uh, peasant of some sort or a nomad, and somebody said, look, you want to join the faith here, and it's a rather simple faith, and it was, and it was fairly attractive and didn't have all the complications of the trinity of, of Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it spread in 150 years. It, it, it was in India all the way through the Middle East, up into Turkey, across North Africa, all up into Spain, why no religion in the world ever spread like that. 
Right. And it was, you know, that was a, it was a hell of a deal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Now, um, continuing with uh, taxes in history, um, well, actually, in, in folklore, you say William Tell uh, had his app, had, had the whole Apple deal as punishment for tax evasion. I could you explain that? Cause I, I read it in the book. But could you explain to the listeners exactly? Yeah, that was definitely how, a good uh, how, how story. that was come up with. Well, that was the, yeah, that was one of the stories, and whether or not there really was a William Tell is still of some dispute because he's, he's one of those characters of history that that under more intensive research they can't quite locate him. Doesn't mean that he that he you know he didn't exist, but he he was he's he's, he's you know he's revered by the. Swiss people for igniting a tax revolt against the Austrians. And the Austrians uh, moved into Switzerland, or at that time, of course, it was a number of, of cantons, we may call it, and tried to impose heavy taxes. And, and he led the revolt against them. And, and as a punishment for his defiance of the Austrian tax lords, he was ordered to shoot an apple off the head of his son. So he's admired not because he was skilled with a crossbow, but he's admired because he ignited this revolt against the Rudolf of Austria. Okay. Um, Another story that occurred, which is a fun story, is, is Godiva. Ah, uh, yeah, Lady Godiva. And Lady Godiva. And, and, uh, and she apparently was a rather attractive lady, and, and she was concerned about the overtaxation up in, the, up in England of the people in her region, and her, her husband was the, you know, basically the lord over that region, and he, she kept bugging him about taxes, and he said, look, he, he says, you ride through town naked on a white horse, and he said, and I'll cut down the taxes. So she did, <laughs> and apparently she had long, beautiful hair, and, and that helped to give her some covering, and she rode through town, and even to this day, they celebrate that in a pageant in, in England. Hmm. Now, if you had a one woman now who could ride through town on a, naked on a white horse <laughs> for tax reform, who would you choose? Just to get a little I would, off the I subject. Would choose to that, but it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, you guys could that, probably do better than I. It'd be interesting to see, you know, how I wonder how like C-SPAN would cover that. Anyway, um, going back to I'm the, sure the folks at PBS would be very happy. Yeah. Uh, going back to the beginning of American taxation, um, you know, the colonists came over, they set up the original 12 colonies, a tax structure was set up, and then soon after that we had a tax revolt. What led to the initial tax revolt in the colonies? Well, yeah, the American colonies, uh, uh, let's, let's go back and, and talk a little bit about in England. Most of them who, who left England and came to the, to the New World and became the colonists left at a time when, when England was under a major tax revolt and, and the British Civil War. Um, and, and they came with them with, with the, you know, the thinking of that war, and that is the rights of Englishmen. And one of the rights of Englishmen was not to be taxed without their consent. So Britain was at war with, with France during the time of, of the American Revolution, and they were hard-pressed for money, and, and they really were. And, and the taxes that they tried to impose on America were not unreasonable and really were quite fair. And one of the points I've made in the book is that is the colonists were really very lucky people. But... Uh, the, the British government had heavy taxes at home. They had tax revolts and riots at home. And so to, to take some pressure off the British people, they established what the uh, Stamp Act. And, and the Stamp Act meant that all kinds of internal transactions involving documents and papers required special stamp taxes. And, of course, what erupted from that was the Stamp Tax Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And that was really the birthplace of the United States. Uh, the, the, the states got there, the, or the what the colonies got together and they met and they said, boy, we're, we just, we're not going to go for this because we haven't consented to it. Right. And 
and consent to tax to them was, as they expressed it, the most basic of all your liberties. It was the liberty upon which all other liberties are based. Now, we don't believe that way anymore, obviously. Definitely but not. they believe that way, and they believe that tax, tax consent had to be real, genuine consent from your people and from your representatives. And the British reacted by saying, well, we believe in consent, too. In fact, we, even, we were invented the idea. And, and they said in the British Parliament and House of Commons, they consent on behalf of all the British people, wherever they may be, whether they're in Jamaica or whether, mm-hmm. whether they're in India or whether they're in North America or Canada, they consent for everybody. They consent for all the women because they couldn't vote. They didn't have a representative, but they consented for everybody. And mm-hmm. so it was kind of a of a, an, of a of a, a nice consent in the sense but it wasn't really genuine because nobody really looked after the colonists. And they said, baloney. Slavery, 
and I personally have no inclination to interfere with slavery. And he reassured the South that the fugitive slave law would be enforced and that they need not fear slavery. And then the Congress, though you take the three branches of government, the Congress passed a resolution which would have established a new constitutional amendment which would have protected slavery forever. Because the slavers were, were arguing about, you know, well, gee, you guys get too many votes and, and you're going you're to hurt us. So they said, look, we'll even give you a constitutional amendment. But they had walked out, they had left, they had gone down to Richmond and established the Confederate Constitution and the Confederate States. And, and they used slavery as this excuse, but they really, that wasn't the excuse. The real thing that got to them, and, and this is what triggered the war, is that Lincoln's party, which was the new Republican party and which was the party of the rich industrialists of the North, they advocated a very high protective tariff. Mm-hmm. And the tariff was 47% for all goods coming into America. Exactly. And so the Southerners, they looked at this tariff and they said, boy, they really got us between a rock and a hard place. If we, if we buy foreign goods, we pay 47% into the federal treasury, which goes to the, the, the Republican Party, which controls the Congress and the presidency, and they're going to spend it on themselves. If we buy northern goods... This protective tariff has made the northern industrials able to jack up the prices, so so they have no competition and they're making fat profits. So it also makes way, the, the south completely the like dependable. It, may, it like makes the south completely dependable That's upon right. the north. And it made them like paying tribute, almost like OPEC. Yeah. You see, uh, and so they, they had they had them uh, had them trapped, and they were furious over this. And this was the whole southern society, not just the slavers. Right. And then Lincoln said in his inaugural address. He said, I'm not going to use any force against the South. He says, they don't have to use the males if they don't want to. The only thing I'll use force for will be to enforce the taxes, and and, and that's essentially what he did. Uh, the northern uh, editorials and the newspapers, they began to see through the facade of slavery. They said originally the slave owners said that's the reason for the secession, that's the reason for the Confederacy, but now the mask is thrown off. These are the words in the editorials. Now what they really are going to do is they're going to set up free tax ports in Charleston and Savannah and New Orleans. Then all the trade from the world will bypass New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, and, and those in the North will be crippled. Okay. And and then and, and finally, I think the thing that nails it is there was an interview by a, what we call a, a news reporter from Fraser Magazine in London, and he came and visited the president, and the war hadn't started yet. And he said, gee, he was really a nice guy and really very bright. And he said he's not going to start a war except for three reasons: one, to enforce the taxes; two, to recover southern forts; and three, to protect. Protect, when I say Southern Force, Union Force that were in the South. Right. And to protect Union Force that were in the South. He said, except for those three things, I'm not going to use any force. Well, of course, that's exactly why he started the war. Mm-hmm. And and even today in the South, you know, they call it the, the War of Northern Aggression. Okay. You talk to people from Virginia, and they'll tell you that wasn't the Civil War, that was mm-hmm. the North War of Northern Aggression. Right. Exactly. Okay, now if we can, uh, we can jump ahead, let's, uh, since we're running a little bit out of time, let's speak a little bit about the IRS itself. When and how was the IRS in its current state formed, and, and, you know, as, it, as it is known now? Well, I, you know, when the income tax was, it was adopted, uh, you know, we had federal taxes before, but the primary federal taxes that we had up in, uh, well, we, we, did, we did have some income taxes in the Civil War. 
but mainly federal taxes were customs, you know, duty coming into the, into the country. Right. But the IRS, you know, was really formed uh, as we know it uh, to enforce the income tax system, which was set up during the First World War. Okay. Um, now, when we talked earlier uh, before the show, you said, and it's was spoken of in your book, that uh, some government officials, including presidents, have used have abused the IRS's power as a way to get back at, uh, to basically settle scores that they had with various people. What are some of the uh, examples? Oh, examples? Yeah. 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 So yeah. Well, one examples. of the earliest examples is Herbert Hoover. For some reason, he didn't like the Navy League, so he flicked the IRS on them. Roosevelt uh, didn't like sort of the, the blue bloods of, of the Northeast. He, you know, he was never quite accepted when he was a college student. Mm -hmm. He was wealthy, and he was a wealthy family in New York, but they never, he never quite made it with the first families of Massachusetts. And so he hated those people, and so he turned the IRS loose on Andrew Mellon and, and on, on the wealthy people, uh, you know, used it to abuse them. The worst examples are more, more recent. Uh, Kennedy used the IRS to go after the right-wing uh, uh, Protestant ministers that attacked his Catholicism. Johnson, of course, used it. The, the, perhaps the worst example is President Nixon. And, and in the tapes that were just released, uh, you know, they've been releasing mm -hmm. the Nixon tapes. Mm -hmm. The ones that came out in the summer of 1991, uh, they show a conspiracy, uh, which was Nixon's in the White House with his, with his buddies, if you want to call them that. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, let's get uh, uh, the Commissioner of Internal Revenue, who was Johnny Walker at the time, he said, let's get him to hammer on our enemies and destroy them. And if he won't do it, we'll get somebody else. And to cover this up, we'll have the IRS also audit some of Nixon's friends, but they'll just be given a light touch. Right. right. I mean, so so this this is frightening, and, and uh, it, it's one of the dangers of the system. Now, I have proposed some some corrective measures. You know, we've never made any major corrections in the structure of our tax system. You know, we talked about changing the rates here, and Clinton's going to, you know, make some new taxes, but I think that it's time to rein in the IRS and to make some major reforms and put some checks on it. See, the IRS is a law unto itself. Congress is scared to death of it. Uh, I think Representative Hansen of Idaho, uh, he went to the Ways and Means Commission Committee in the, in, in the House, and he wanted them, along with some of his other fellow congressmen, to investigate the mis abuses of the IRS. And he said, we were turned to deaf ear because, and here's the words he used, he said, the Congress is terrified of what the IRS might do to them. So one of the requests and suggestions for reform that I put in my book is to take all the congressmen and even the federal judiciary off the IRS tax rolls. That'd be, yeah, that would be. So uh, you see, then there's no way the IRS can hammer on them. Right. And then they can pass the kind of laws that they think we ought to have. And, and there, there are two senators that were driven from power because they sought to investigate the IRS, Senator Montoya of um, New Mexico and Senator Long, and these were uh, senators that wanted to investigate the IRS, and so mm -hmm. information was leaked and there was, uh, from, their, from their tax files, and, and they were defeated, and, and they were basically driven from office. Probably the worst example was uh, with Justice A. Fortas. Now, Justice A. Fortas was, a, was really one of the great justices on the Supreme Court. In right, the yeah. And, mm -hmm. and A. Fortas was nominated by Lyndon Johnson to become For, Chief Justice yes, of the United States. Yes, I remember that. And a reporter from Life magazine got a call from the IRS one day and said, hey, we got to have lunch. 
So he says, fine. He said, I got some interesting news for you. So they were having lunch, and he says, by the way, Anne Portis has just been nominated for Chief Justice. Maybe you want to look in a few things in his, his, his life like this. And he proceeds to list stuff that was came out of his tax file. Right. And, of course, it was leaked. It wasn't the kid committing crimes, but it was embarrassing to him. Mm-hmm. And, of course, not only did he, did he not become Chief Justice, and we got Berger, which was a terrible disappointment, um, he resigned from the court. Yeah. Right. And and in my book, there's an, there's an interesting uh, little story in the, about Justice Fortis. His, his wife, who was a very capable woman, she had a tax problem, and so she went to the Commissioner of Internal Revenue, and he cleaned it up. And then he wrote a little letter, and um, he, he said, he reminded her that uh, uh, I may need Abe's, Abe's vote someday. Uh-huh, okay. And which indicates, of course, that when the IRS had a key case in the Supreme Court, he would he would maybe capitalized on the little IOU he had acquired by helping him with the problem. And so the problem with the federal judiciary is even worse because the IRS had files on every judge. They right. know all about his personal life, his yeah. police, where he spends yeah. his money, what he does. And I think every federal judge knows that. And yeah. so if you have a case involving the Internal Revenue Service and you're, you're in the court, uh, you're supposed to have a completely independent, unbiased judge. He's supposed to disqualify himself if he has any relation to any of the parties. Now, he's in bed with the service, whether he likes it or not. Yeah, I mean, basically, they're his partner. They get a percentage of his income. They have a right to audit his books. They have a right to snoop into his affairs. How can he possibly be independent and unbiased? Right. Well, the best thing, yes, uh, it's a tough situation. I guess the best thing for people to do is to educate themselves. Well, there you have it. Brian, I, I, kudos to you with your contributions to that interview i mean you you downed yourself a bit but i think people can tell this was one of the uh one of the episodes where you're bringing your a-game i think kudos to anybody still watching right now because (laughs) anybody who sat there and made it through that interview and is still sitting there saying no 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 i want more give me more ron and brian that's what scares the daylights out of me and kudos to those people because those are the ones that are really bringing it this week. They're the heroes, without a doubt. Of course. Uh, and we we are bringing probably uh, the worst of the best or the best of the worst, however you want to consider it. Uh, we did a, a very cliche-ridden uh, wrap-up show for the end of 1992. Uh, we did a best and worst of, because that's what everybody was doing 30 years ago. And I think they're still doing it these days. I don't think... I think... Are I we still days. doing it? I think we probably are still like doing we're, it. This is like, this will be our 30th anniversary best and worst of. Like, I still think we do the year retrospective. We still predict what's going to happen the following year. Um, I know every year around Christmas time, I like to ask you um, for your, uh, what is it? The uh, the rose, the thorn. Um, what is that game that we like to play? Like, what is the thing that, um, God damn it, I already forgot. And who said that I was, uh, that, the, that the brain damage ended when I was in college? Well, uh Needless to say, this is 30 years ago. Our uh, our waistlines were thinner. Our voices mm-hmm. were higher. Uh, our hairlines were uh, closer to the front of our head. Uh, yeah, but you you uh, it's still, it's still I got a little bit I got a little bit gray. Your hair still seems to be kind of the same color. But not only have we grown in size uh, over the years, I think our viewpoints have grown. So I'm not oh, going well. to say that we're proud of some of the things that you're going to hear in this next mm-hmm. segment. Uh, it was a very unwoke Ron and Brian back then. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Taking us 
30 years to get to this point. So, so please keep that in mind as you listen to this last part of the episode. So before we get to it, I would officially like to apologize too. I mean, because the comments that I'm about to make, obviously 30 years ago, I was a lot younger. I'd like to apologize to all African-Americans. I would like to um, apologize to um, the uh, handy, capable people. Um, I'd like to apologize to the less abled people. I would like to apologize to all um, uh, transvestites. Um, uh, additionally, the Filipinos, I believe I specifically need to apologize to them for some of the comments you're going to hear. And lastly, and, and this is the one that, that, that really hurt when I, um, when I, you know, when, when you went, when we played this clip and, uh, and I just heard some of the words that I was saying, I do feel that I need to apologize to the, um, people who are, um, height impaired, um, the terms and the, uh, you know, suggestions that I used in terms of um, uh, uh, activities uh, that, that should be taking place at bars. No, no, not OK. Not OK. And I owe an apology to them um, simply because they are, they are, are, are less than four feet tall. There's absolutely no reason why people should be able to pay to throw them across a uh uh, a, a bar. Not okay. I, I'm we also, sorry. Uh, we'd be remiss if we also did not send out an apology from both of us to Seth Lightman, uh, who you will not know who this person is. Uh, it will be an inside joke that probably none of you will find humorous. But if we cut it out of the segment, uh, we feel like it would cheapen it. We feel we would be trying to hide something from you. So Do you want to let people know who he is? Joke, you have no, he was, uh, he was the head of what he was the head of like student association or, and yeah. he, he wanted the radio station to sponsor a spin doctors concert, even yeah. though the radio station did never you know, did alternative, it did contemporary soul, yeah. it did jazz, ne never played spin doctors. So Correct. we never. may have uh, done a funeral on the air for him at one point, which people felt went too far uh we may have said other things about him uh and his his appearance and himself sure uh, sure so again we will we will kind of zing him a little bit uh so we apologize to him as well and we apologize yeah. to you guys for having to sit through and listen to it but we hope you enjoy this our last uh cringe prospective section of the evening uh this is ron and brian's best and worst of 1992 that shaped 1992. Number 10. These are, of course, not in order of importance, just as we see them. 10 events. Well, number one really is, is, yeah. is the most important. I'll give you I that. I feel so. But the 10 are just... So read them. Number 10. <laughs> Mike Tyson accused of rape. That's right. Denise Washington bringing uh, down the ex-champion. Yes. It was a uh, sad day in court as Mike Tyson was lynched in ah. court for the rape charges. Well, that's according Careful. to Chuck D. Public Enemy. Careful. I personally think that the guy was guilty and <clears throat> should go to jail for life. But uh, yeah, I think that rape is uh, treated too uh, lightly, too Blase. lightly in our society. Because I think that it's it's viewed in a chauvinistic type <clears throat> sense of you know just some guy you know you know he was getting a little lonely when you know it's a crime you know there's more damage done than you know you know people think. Right, psychological damage lasts for a lifetime. And we go from a guy who got caught to a guy who got away at number nine being William Kennedy Smith and the blue dot. <laughs> that is of the uh, number nine, Patricia Bowman, of course. Of course. What was uh, that last name again? Bowman? Okay. Mrs. Uh, 
Mrs. Blue Dot. <laughs> so, as I was saying, Mrs. Blue Dot. Mrs. Blue Dot. I'm as next a, Oprah. No uh, promiscuity. <laughs> Quick, Martha, go get it. <laughs> no. Um, but I, I believe that that trial was uh, fair. No, I think he was, I knew. I, 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 he must. I knew he was guilty. 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 You have been found guilty by the Supreme Court. You have been banished into this plate's glass for the rest of your life <laughs> until you land on the planet Krypton. Yeah. What's number eight? <laughs> uh, Seth Lightman, man. Seth Lightman. However, you know, I got no respect for him after his apology in print. You have no respect? I have more respect for him. More respect. But you had none, so... I had, like, negative respect. Yeah. I still had negative respect for him. It's just not It's just not as negative. I don't know. I, I think if you look at it, I don't think you could find a woman to say that, you know, they've slept with Seth. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, that's just me. Just considering the fact that we that every woman in the Capital District region is, call, is listening to us right now... If you slept with Seth Whiteman, please call us up here at the WCDB studios at 4242. We actually and want to see if we can get someone calling in. If somebody can say that they've slept with Seth Whiteman, give us a call right now. Get to those phones. Exactly. But not one call, so uh, <laughs> we'll move on to number seven. Bill Clinton's election as the uh, next president of the United States. I believe either 51 or 52. Our 52nd president, I believe he might be. <laughs> Um, try like 47. That's it? Yeah. Ooh, history major Brian. <laughs> Alright, um, and you know, by the, by the time we do our next show in 93, he will have been inaugurated, I believe, or close to being inaugurated. Depends on when we actually get back into town, I Correct. think. Because, um, you know, we're going on the on, on our world tour. Yes, exactly. Coming See, to that's your... the reason why we're not doing any more shows. We are going on our world tour. 1992-93, we'll be hitting the, uh... The continent, Europe. That's right. We'll be doing some shows there. You know, Europe. we got uh, we have the giant metal insects and the goats opening up for That's us. That's right. And then we'll be heading over to Japan. We're doing, we're doing the Tokyo couple, Dome. We're doing a couple shows in the Tokyo Dome. You know, we have uh, Public Enemy, you know, uh, co-headlining with us. And uh, then we'll make it. We'll, we'll swing back to uh, you know Africa, right? Where we're doing you know the uh, House of Pain will be joining us at that point. Where we will be doing you know our Bob Hope special. <laughs> That's right for the Somali troops. Somali troops. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if Guns N' Roses are going to be with us or not. No, they will be on us with our South American leg. That's right. That's tour. Right. And then we swing back to Albany <laughs> to start up shows again. So, some of the time in January. So, yeah. just keep it tuned to 90.9 FM WCDB Albany. That's right. Because some of the Wednesday days, mornings at 7, you don't know when we'll be yeah. on, but we will. Right. If you, know, if you turn it on and there's like nothing happening, like just static, you know we're not on. <laughs> then just you know go to go to another channel for a few hours to listen. I disagree. I think you you should stay with the static because the uh, static on WCDB beats any music on any other show. All right, all right. All right. What about six? We were still doing Bill Clinton. Did we discuss it? Well, we just you know, well time will tell. Do you believe that it was a mandate from the people? I believe so. You but believe time so? time will tell how effective his administration History will be. History will not look kindly on George Bush. I don't know. That's we'll, my prediction. But we'll have to see. We'll have to wait. He and will see. be seen as uh, as a man who was uh, uh, embarrassed by the uh, you know the world is being called a wimp. And uh, decided to use the military uh, arm of our uh, government as uh, his little own little, uh, you know, excuse to show his manlyhood. Oh, we'll see. All right. Um, <laughs> All right. Jay Leno taking over for the uh, tonight show on I NBC. Know. 
And then with the whole David Letterman thing David now, Letterman this, thing, is, uh, this, is, this could be a very, this could might have, actually should be moved up to like number four maybe. Perhaps. I mean, but if you think about it, Jay Leno and David Letterman goes head to head. Who do you think is going to be the winner? Letterman. Definitely. I think Dave is, is uh, well, I know. I know it's like my, I'm part of the age group for Letterman. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think, met, like, I don't see many of my uh, peers saying, hey man, did you see Jay last night? The one, thing, jokes the, just, the one advantage Letterman has over Leno is that Letterman's funny. That's true. I would have to agree with you there. I believe, well, I think Jay Leno is actually a funny person. Le, Le, I just Jay believe is the a, monologues are horrible. You know, yeah. his interviews are horrible. I think, you know, you put Jay Leno in front of a bar, you know, with like, you know, maybe like a couple hundred tanked up people <laughs> and, you know, give him a mic and, you know, everybody will be laughing. Right. But you, sho you shove him in, on a stage, you know, you know, with with some curtains behind them, and you know, a couple ca TV cameras. It's a know, real tacky. You know, set. zooming into like you know a couple million people household. A very tacky set. A ve uh, you know a good band, but that's you know I great, just that's I, the only like basically good thing about the entire show is Branford and the the band. But you know what, I I, I I do like the band. I just don't think it's it's like the kind of music that you know it's it's only it's ready for prime time. Yeah, this is true. You know what I'm saying? Cause it's just like. You know what we need is like a soul asylum house band or something like that, you know? That, that would be cool. Kind of a soul asylum meets Soundgarden meets a House of Pain type house band. Bingo. Meets Sick of It All meets the Mongol Beach Party. The Chainsaw meets the High Back Chairs meets Brenda Khan meets Chainsaw Kittens. Brian, reading the labels in rotation. <laughs> ween. <laughs> ween. Ween. All right. Got any ween? Five. Uh, Four. Three. No, two, no, 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 no. Whoa. Uh, yeah, we got the L.A. riots. L.A. riots. That was some bad stuff going on there, man. A lot of people got a lot of free stuff, though. <laughs> a lot of free stuff. Just be careful. A lot of free stuff. All right, guys. Let's just just be careful. Anyway, no. L.A. riots. Um, it was just bad. It was a. It was, I think it was a bad, bad moment for America, no matter yes. what color you were. Of course it was. I, however, I do believe that it brought attention to what was basically going on in the inner cities in our in our country and it was just saying hey you know it's 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 horrible here you know why don't you help us out yes it just brought a new light onto the problems because you know you know the music of of our society <laughs> i don't know i was gonna what I, are you I had a point talking but, about? i don't know no but um the, you mo know, the mood of our society were you trying mood. to say that's how i meant to say right. but music just came out <laughs> Like the mood of our society is, you know, at the time is, you know, hey, you know, we're all going great. You know, economy is going to pick up soon. You know, we're going to have a new president. You know, you know, the uh, Persian Gulf War was great. And then this happened. And suddenly people were like, hey, you know, you know, I may I may be living great, but there are people who are living in a war zone in America. In America, right. And it's just not being, like, Unfortunately, though, too many of those people said, well, it doesn't really matter because that war zone is, is in southeast. Uh, L.A. Uh, southeast. Uh, <laughs> Southeast Asia. <laughs> but, the know, Malaysians so, which, versus the like Philippines. I mean, and people on the East Coast don't, I mean, they feel it, but, you know, pe too many people are just like, well, that's 3,000 miles away from me. I know, if you yeah. think about it, I mean, how does, like, the average guy in, like, Boogers, Montana relate to the problems people have in L.A.? Um, yeah, he goes out in his pickup truck with, like, a six-pack of Mil old Milwaukee or his, something And like his that. baseball bat. And his, his, his like, Packer red man. <laughs> and his shotgun. He goes out and he, like, shoots... A couple deer. Possum. Yeah, shoots possum. Shoots possum with a semi-automatic rifle because you know those hunters need something that can shoot off at least a hundred rounds a minute. <laughs> I mean, have you seen possums on steroids? It's just really amazing. It's, it's just not fair anymore to hunters. 
I think so. Alright, four? We go, bro. That's alright. <clears throat> Number four. Hurricane Andrew. Bad stuff. Again, bad Horrible stuff. stuff. But once again, what does a man from like Boogers, Alabama, how can he relate to the the travestine pain that's going on in Florida? I don't know, he but goes, again, he it goes is... and sits on his couch with a fan in front of him, scratching his beer belly, drinking another can of a uh, Old Milwaukee. Milwaukee. There right. you go. But I, again, it's showing how this country can come together and work as one against the acts of God that plague us every now and then. Remember that time when we were in Stewart's and it was like 6 o'clock in the morning and the guy's buying like chewing tobacco? Yeah, that was very funny. That was just too a early. funny moment. Too like, oh, early for Red Man. Red Man. I'm like, yeah, man, if you need to catch a buzz at like 6 o'clock <laughs> in the morning, like you must have like a hell day coming up. <laughs> Alright, number three. All right, Maybe um, you're going to do a morning talk show. Right? Could be. Could be. Athletic free elections. Was that number three? That was number three. We already talked about it. So number two, Somalia. Somalia. We we had put it down as number two even before. Yeah. You know it all went down last before night. Before Operation Mogadishu. Restore hope. Yeah. All right. Over off to number one. The number one thing. Uh, Can I get a drum roll? Ninety-two. Yeah, I think it'd take a few minutes though to no. just read it. No. <laughs> the introduction of the Ron Bryan show. Yes. Drama. On WCDB. Actually, there was a tie at number one. Wasn't it was there? actually a tie. You know, I really didn't want to mention it, but now you bring it up. The, uh, you know, the stuff going on in Bosnia. But the most important thing I do believe was the Ron and Brian show. The introduction of humor and entertainment to WCDB mornings. That's right. The first. Because you know, you come, you you know, you put CDB on at nine fifteen, and this is what you hear. All right. All right. All right. That was. That was Allison Chains. That was Elvin. My yeah. Todd impersonation. Thank you. Yes, Todd Aubrey, the person who follows this show. All right. All Club right. Beat. All right, now it's time for Club Beat. All right. All right, now it's time for Best Worst of you know, 1992. Right now and, like, you know, putting his fists right through the wall. <laughs> <laughs> that was Bob. I'm going to those guys. I'm going to get those. You know, stop, stop, right. hogging the, stop hogging the pipe. What are they saying about me? How could they be saying that stuff about me? Oh. Uh, Alright, time for our best worst list of 1992. Brian, could you could you give us the first topic, please? Best movie of 1992. Ron, best movie? Um, I'm going to have to say my best movie that I've seen so far this year probably was Wayne's World. I'm going to have to pick that. Are you serious? Or is that like a joke? I mean, I'm serious. I can't, I mean, it, it made me laugh the most. I mean, it was something I <coughs> I enjoyed the most. <coughs> yeah, excuse me. What do you have to go with? I'm going with Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs. The movie that I, I saw over the Thanksgiving break. It is a uh, a gritty look. It's a gritty... No, it's just a very... Uh, a dark movie about, you know, a couple, uh, you know, bank robbers. Uh-huh. Not really bank robbers. They, they rob a jewelry store. A jewel heist. A jewel heist. And, you know, it's very bloody and Harvey Keitel's in it. And I thought that was a good movie. All right. And uh, on the other end of the spectrum, do we get Martha's opinion? I think Aladdin is the movie of the year. Okay. So on the other end of the spectrum, we have... It's a tie, either Aladdin or Home Alone 2. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we have, of course, worst film of the year. Worst film of the year. Brian? I don't know. Come on. I don't remember. You had to see a movie that you just said to myself. You just said to yourself, "My God, that was terrible! I can't believe I wasted money on that." Not really, because I really haven't didn't haven't gone to see so that many movies this year. All right. You want to know my worst movie of the year? Yes. Raising Cain. Raising Cain with John Lithgow, the Francis Ford Coppola deal. 
Was it Coppola? Yeah, maybe. No, it was uh, Scorsese. No, it wasn't. It, was, it wasn't it was Scorsese. Uh, Spike Lee. Um, no, no, it wasn't Stephen Spike King. Lee. No, it wasn't Stephen King. It was Stephen King. It wasn't Stephen King. And it was the other guy. No, it was. It wasn't Coppola. It Lucas. Was. No, it wasn't Lucas. Who did Body Heat? Body Heat. Kissing Turner and yeah, Wing yeah, yeah. Who directed it though? I don't know. It wasn't Coppola. It'll come to me. But listen, man, years of like drug use just fried yeah. my brain, so I can't remember. Here's another tape you can't bring home to the parents. I know. Raising Cain though, predictable. Well, that's predictable. Stuff, you know, predictable. Excited. Yeah, exactly. But it was just too predictable. It's just predictable. You I didn't like it. I didn't like it. Next topic. Best best TV show of 1992, without a doubt. Best TV show of 1992 once again would have to be for me the simpsons you go with the simpsons yeah um i am gonna go with uh on uh the uh larry sander show that, that was, was good too i would have HBO. To, i'd have to give that my, my honorable uh, mention i'll have to say that for you know the amount of you know real publicity that the show's gotten it is i i feel a, a really good show because yeah. Gary Shandling had a show on Showtime a couple years ago that, you know... Excellent. That was really good. The Gary Shandling Show. Yes, it's Gary Shandling Show. It's <laughs> Gary Shandling Show. Yes. But now he's got one on HBO, Larry Shandling Show, where he plays a talk show host. It's very and funny, very realistic. I have to say that on a regular basis, it is one of the more comedic yeah. shows. Yes. Martha? Rush Limbaugh. This right. show is great. I okay. watch it every night. All right. Worst show of the year? Rush Limbaugh. Okay. I say Rush Limbaugh. Uh, I'm going to have to third that and say the Rush Limbaugh show, worst of the year. Our first unanimous pick, Rush Limbaugh. Next time. Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> Best album of the year. Myself, personally, I'm going to have to say uh, Roger Waters, Amused to Death. You like that? Uh, I was excellent. I just recently, like, in the last, like, couple nights... Have I really, you know, started listening to that album? That is just more. an incredible album to just sit down and just, you know, relax to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would have to agree with you on that one. So you're going with that for the best album? No. Okay. I'd right, say so mine is a tie between Ministries Psalm 69 and the Breeders EP Safari. Martha? The Beastie Boys, check your head. I heard that was an excellent album. That I, I own the copy of that. That's good. Slamming. <laughs> okay, uh, worst album of the year? Worst album of the year. I'm going to have to go with one of the two Bruce Springsteen releases. Either one. Either Lucky Town or the other one. I second that motion. Second and third. My, my guess, worst album in 1992 was Motorhead's March or Die. They were a, uh, they used to be good, now they're... They used to be like a really good hard rock band. Yeah. Now yeah. they're just like a you know a cheesy MTV type you know warrant like metal band with puffed up hair and makeup. I hear ya. Next topic. Best group of 1992. Best group of 1992. That's a tough one. Your thoughts? I'm going. With, I think I'm going with Nirvana. Nirvana. They made it big. I don't know. I got after after Nirvana their. Nirvana was really late 1991. After seeing their performance at Lollapalooza 2, I'm going to have to go with Pearl Jam as Group of the Year. They were just unbelievable at Lollapalooza. It's a good, you know... Martha? Uh, either the Beastie Boys. Yeah, the Beastie Boys, the Mighty Mighty Bostones. Or Slamming. Perhaps the Chili Peppers. All right. Yeah, Chili Peppers, possibly. The Chili Peppers finally got... Finally got the recognition they deserved. I mean, after yeah, like, but and they, they got it off on a song that was just horrible. 
What's that? My mom likes that song. What? Under the Bridge is a really great song. It is. It's so about it isn't traditional chili peppers. Sappy and disgusting. It's about his. Uh, so what? It's, it's about a great his. Song. It's about him recovering from his heroin addiction, man. Yeah. But it's still just musically and stuff. It's a good song, yeah. and it really isn't that far off from the Chili Pepper sound. It's just a ballad. I think. I think Brian's kind of. Uh, just a little too into this alternative thing. I know, really. I don't know. He's starting to turn into a Seth Lightman. Listen, I have, I have a theory. When my mom knows lyrics to a song, it's time for me not to listen to it anymore. And I came home one day, one weekend, and I was watching MTV, and, you know, Under the Bridge comes on. And my mom walks in, sits down, and she goes, Oh, I like this song. And then a couple minutes later, she's singing... And I don't ever want to feed. Yeah, so I said that. I looked at my mom and I was just like, this is the last time I ever, you know, listen to this song, right? I think there are many other tracks on that song that are better. Okay. Oh, well, yeah, definitely. Many other tracks on, on that, that song. song. On that CD, I think. On that I mean. CD. All right. Um, we're you understand, man? It just melds All right. into one song. Okay. All right. Yeah. Worst group of the year. Worst group. Um... I don't know. What do you think? I'm going with the return of Milli Vanilli. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, you see, the brain works some, sometimes. The brain does work yeah. sometimes. Worst group. Most yeah. of the time, it's just barren. I wish I had prepared this beforehand. <laughs> um, Martha, what do you got picked as your worst, worst group? Nirvana. Ooh. And in the immortal words of What's Jesus. What's the man? Just because they made it big, man, you got to you gotta hate them because you're on your little alternative kick? No, I just don't like them. They're right. noisy. And in the wor- immortal words of Jason Daniel Smith, <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. Okay. You hear that? <laughs> I heard that. Beep. Beep. Um, <laughs> what, what could the, what could the worst group of 1992 on, be? We can't move on until we get an answer. Yeah, from I know. It. I know. What what groups did I really? Rush Limbaugh studio audience. Well, no. no. Oh, that's that. I could spend a half an hour on that. Yeah. I mean, the man doesn't even like try and like give off the appearance that he is like a minority audience. You know what I'm saying? I, I know. I I hear you. All right. My. My worst group, my worst group pick uh, of uh, the year. Yeah. Um, probably, maybe, I don't know. I'm going to have to pass on that. Because I can't think of any group that really annoyed me. I have to say Millie Vanilli, too. Because I did. be awful on $25,000 Pyramid. Yeah. Um, a thing uh, that uh, a possum would say. Right. But I, I did. Actually, uh, stop that, shooting that, at me. Do that thing kicking around there with the former GM on the uh, $25,000 Pyramid? I don't know. Like, anyway, next right topic. Yeah. Okay. Um. Best male vocals. Best male vocals. Got to go with Roger Waters. I will go with Glenn Danzig on the Danzig Three. How the gods. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Classic moment. Uh, can I do my worst actor? Of course you can. Meatloaf in, in right, Wayne's right, World right. as Sean the Bowser. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Come Sean on. Sean Connery. Ron, do it. Um. Be, be careful. Um, what you shoot at. Some um, things in here don't react too well with bullets. Um, I say it. Um, some things don't react in here to bullets. Alright, I say, Martha, you get number one. I take number two. <laughs> Ron, you're down at number three. Thank you. Alright. Well, next... Actually, Ron's like about number four, I think. <laughs> no, no. Next topic. I think Seth Lyman does a better Sean <laughs> Connery. Number, uh, oh, actress. Right, best. best actress. Best actress. Best actress. Best actress. Best actress. Hmm. Yes, that is the topic. Brian? I don't know. I don't, I don't think Brian performed very well this year as far as back actress, best actress. Best actress. What's, what's he talking what about? What did you just say? <laughs> well, he, he said that you were the best actress of the year, and I really disagreed with him on that. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to have to say Tia Carrere in Wayne's World, because she would just look too good. 
Okay. Martha? Ooh. Mmm, that's the toughie. Did, did uh, Hand and Roster Cradle come out this year or last year? Did what? Hand and last year, I believe. Last year. But we'll use it anyway, just so we can move it on. <laughs> I know. It, did come, it was released on videotape 1992, yeah. so. so it's still considered a 1992 release. Uh-huh. Alright, let's move it along. Listen to that. Yeah, let's move it along, shall we? Alright. Wait, wait, I, I'm missing the obvious one. Sharon Stone, Basic Instinct. Showing. Definitely. Definitely. Yes. Worst actress. I will go with, uh... Hmm. Worst actress. Did Gina Davis do any films this year? <laughs> she did Hero with Dustin Hoffman. Okay. I heard that was really bad. I go with Gina Davis Gina for the Davis performance in Hero. Definitely. Martha? Tia Carrera in Wayne's World. <laughs> you know, all he does is just take one of our answers and use it. <laughs> That's right. You're so original. All right, next topic. Ron, what about you? Yeah. Your worst actress. I said Gina Davis also. Oh, you did. Gee, Ron, you're so original. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm the one who said Gina Davis in Hero. Okay, you just cop let's, me. Let's go with... Uh, no, I asked you about Gina Davis. All right. What's what's the next topic? Best SA official. Best SA official, Diego Munoz. I agree with you. Martha? Amen. All right. Unanimous. Unanimous. Worst SA official. Seth, Gee, the man, Lightman. Seth Lightman. One, two... Sad Whiteman. All right, beautiful. All right, next topic. The best excuse for the athletic fee postponement collection. I'd have to say, oh, I'm sorry. We don't have any ballots for you to vote on. I will go with the fact that there were, that the guy was telling people what to vote for. Martha? Seth Whiteman rigged it. Very good. And the worst reason for postponing the athletic fee referendum. Um... Let's see. Okay, um, let me take this. Uh, they weren't prepared. <laughs> I was just like, that's no excuse. The guy who was in charge of it went home the weekend before, so that's he didn't right. do it. You know, I understand that Jay Anderson, the uh, person who was in charge of the elections, is going to be... I, I, <coughs> excuse me. I hear he's going to be replaced by Bobo, the dancing monkey. <laughs> so, uh, you heard it here first. Bobo, the dancing monkey replaces Jay Anderson as election coordinator for the Student Association at Albany. Next topic. <laughs> Next topic, please. Get my eyesight back. <laughs> let, let us remind you that WCDB is funded by the Student Association. All right. The, the best Ron and Brian moment was, I would say, maybe an hour ago. <laughs> Actually, it was about 40 minutes. I'd have to agree with you there. <laughs> the worst Ron and Brian moment about the same time. Yes. All right, the uh, best TV commercial. The best TV commercial. Um, I'm gonna have to say those Energizer commercials always crack me. Up. I'll say the um, the new uh, Charlie uh, <laughs> commercial starring Cindy uh, Crawford. The and two Richard. biggest sellouts in today's society. Right. Definitely, Martha. You got the right one, baby. Uh huh. Okay. I mean, could Cindy sing a little bit more off key? Right. And she goes, Are they gonna call her Cindy? Ooh, cool. All right, worst cool. worst commercial, I'd say would have to be. Uh, well, there are some bad commercials. You know what I really hated throughout the year? Those Tasters Choice commercials. Okay, okay um, best tabloid headline. <laughs> best tabloid headline: Chicago mom gives birth to seven pound eyeball. I will go with the Stumpy Boy. Uh, <laughs> one leg, one arm, and he plays basketball and drives. And a little one on one. Plays a little one on one.
Well, that was as bad as I remembered. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, when when you when you brought up the the title of the episode, um, I did not believe I would be cringing as badly as I am right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It it was. Um, uh, all joking aside, I'm not proud of what uh, of of what you just heard. Yeah, you know, I feel. I'm I felt proud. like. I felt like at the time we were funnier. We we thought we were hilarious. Yeah. And there was a, much like this podcast, there was a small handful of people that found us entertaining and yes. listened to us on a weekly basis. Um, we are, our range has grown a little bit. We're now in many more uh, states and countries than we were back then. Uh, but yeah, we we thought we were funny, but we have educated ourselves. We have, we have grown and I feel we're better people now. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, one of the things, uh, especially looking back on it, I think, um, you know, there, 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 there has been quite a, a, a huge amount of maturing. You know, yeah. I think that there's, uh, in terms of a, a compassion towards your fellow people, you know, the, we, we, I, I definitely feel like you and I have, you know, shown growth in our ability to understand that, um, you know, other, you, you don't know what somebody else is going through. Exactly. And it may be easy to assume and and to project what you're what you feel um, onto others, but uh, but you really can't. Um, and at the same time, what has remained consistent for the past thirty years is our never-ending desire to entertain you, uh, the person that is watching this right now. You know, uh, we were doing it thirty years ago. Um, always trying to find new ways to 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 make people smile laugh, think, um, uh, uh, cry, um, entertain themselves. This gotta stop. Sorry, I had to throw that in one time before we got out of here. Well, Brian, um, happy 50th birthday again. Thank you, Ron. Thank uh, you very oh, much. You. you know, you're near and dear to my heart, and I look forward to 30 more years at least together with you uh, doing this show, um, shooting each other, and tell you what, for your first 50th birthday, I'm going to let you be the big spoon. Okay. I would very much like to be the big spoon once because my rectum is just, it, it, it needs a break. It needs Under a break. It's just so sore. So sore. Well, thank you so everyone for joining us and for sitting through this entire show. We know it was a, it was a throwback and not, always in a good way, but it was, it was hopefully interesting and entertaining to all of you. We will be back again next Sunday night. Brian, what else do you have this week? Just want to say, I love you. Um, thank you. I want to thank you and your wife for the, just a lovely gift basket. You know, the pears, the apples, the cheese. Um, uh, I, I, you know, it's, um, it's nice to know that you're loved. Nothing says love like a gift from Harry and David. We'll have to see if we can get him as a uh, as a uh, sponsor on the show. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us, everybody. We will catch you again next week. But this time's gotta stop. Ah, hit the wrong one. We're gonna catch you again next week. Thank you for joining us on the Ron and Brian podcast. We're live each week on YouTube. Facebook, and Twitch. You can find prior episodes, links to our social media, and everything else Ron and Brian at ronandbrianpodcast.com.